Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Welcome to 10% True. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for hosting me. Good morning. You're, you're unique in several respects as a guest of mine on, on the channel, but probably the most important is that you are my first uh, German guest, uh, German in terms of your nationality, but also German in terms of um, the Air Force that you flew for. And today we're going to talk about a, a range of different things, predominantly focused on your time flying the F-104 Starfighter. You did also fly the Tornado, and I'll let you introduce yourself and, and tell us a bit about you in a minute. But just for the guests at home, uh, we will, if Rolf enjoys this experience, we'll come back and we'll do a part two where Rolf will talk about the Tornado. But the focus today is going to be on the F-104 and his early days, his early career as a fast jet pilot. Now, with that brief introduction done, um, before we talk about flying, Rolf, I wanted to ask if you would talk a little bit about growing up in West Germany and, and how that sort of shaped your view of the world and your experiences. Um, and I know that's not a, necessarily a flying-related topic, but uh, for me, uh, as a child of the of the of the Cold War, so I grew up um, in the latter stages. I was born in 1975. I grew up in the latter stages of the Cold War when it fell in 1991. That was great, but I sort of experienced what it was like to live in that world. Uh, but I've never really talked to anybody who was from West Germany, and and I just wanted to know what that experience was like, and in particular, what it meant to be West German, and whether or not you felt a kinship with East Germans. And, you know, you've got Germany divided, West Germany divided into three sections with the Brits and the Canadians and the Americans administratively running parts of them. Um, what was it like? Well, you're actually hitting one of my favorite life subjects, because this has overshadowed my entire youth and the and the rest of my career, actually, within the military, because I was born in 1954 in the British sector of Germany. So I was um, born in Lower Saxony, which is now an area between the Harz Mountains and the Western um, region near the Netherlands. And I was uh, the son of a German uh, architect uh, and, uh, and a pharmacist. So uh, we lived in... Uh, in the central part of uh, Lower Saxony, which is uh, not far from Hamburg, Hanover area. And uh, I remember as a kid, of course, um, Germany still in ruins, um, people, one-legged people walking around, you know, uh, crippled from the war, uh, poor people. Um, but then, of course, at the same time in the, in the early 50s, a very strong economic development. So really great times for the young families. Um, 
you know, people are able to purchase a, a motorcycle or a car, building uh, building houses. Um, yeah, so this was a, a the basic background. So I grew I grew up right inside uh, in 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 the middle of this um, uprise. Uh, and um, as I said, in the British sector, which means we had a British license plate, British Lower Saxony BN. My dad drove a little car and he was going to work. And when I started school in 1960, Germany was still technically, uh, didn't have a, a wall, an iron curtain yet. Yes, it was separated. Yes, since 1949, we had both um, our constitutions and uh, technically separate states, but it wasn't until 1961 when the wall, as we all know, was erected from Berlin and then on. So um, I was uh, right in the middle of this when I was at first and second grade and the teachers were explaining to us, hey guys, you know, unfortunately our country will, is about to be split up and here, look, look at these uh, uh, cut uh, train train lines and, uh, and roads. And we could actually witness it because we were living only a half an hour from the border. So our grade school teacher would take us to the water, uh, to the wall, um, look at the fence, look at the fortifications, look at the East German soldiers erecting um, barbed wire and so on. And then trying to catch a glimpse of the, um, the farmers, you know, on the other side doing their little things. And it's really mysterious for me at the time. Now, later in high school, or oh, we, um, we had a lot of uh, instruction about that. Of course, Cold War was a big subject. And uh, we were learning that we were part of NATO, part of, you know, uh, the whole political um, system. And, and uh, we were very interested about the other side. I was personally interested because I could watch East German television in black and white. They have a different system over there. They don't have the PAL system. They have the, uh, not the NTSC, the CCAM, like the French did. So from my grandmother's house, which was even closer to the fence, I could watch their uh, television, which was totally different from ours. I mean, pure indoctrination, pure propaganda, and uh, only positive information about the workers, you know, the, the agriculture industry and everything. And because they tried to put down everything that was on the West side and trying to, you know, shed a positive light on everything they did over there. And I, I noticed as even as a kid, something wasn't right. And this couldn't be true. So um, I became more interested and I was actually gathering as much information as I could. Um, having sent them books from East German Propaganda Ministry under a West Berlin address, um, you could write them and they uh, they would send you loads of uh, interesting books about their culture and medical achievements and whatever, television and satellite dishes and everything. So um, I tried to get information from both sides as, as much as I could. So it was a very fascinating start for me. And all my life, you know, I was... I went to school before the, the wall came up and I I was down I was there when it came down. I did my first flights with Lufthansa later into East Germany when it was still East Germany. So yeah, it was very fascinating for me to this day. Did you feel like there was a, a sort of commonality then between you and East Germans? I mean, you know, so one day there one day you're sort of a single country but administratively cut up. 
by what would have been called the Allies during World War II. Um, yeah. And the next day, effectively, you're a country divided by physically by a barrier. Did, did that lead to then you feeling sympathy for the people stuck on the other side? Or, or, and over time, did you feel disconnected from them? Did they evolve into a different type of German? I would say both, yes. Of course, initially, we had family over there. We had um, I had an auntie in Leipzig um, who, who sent us uh, East German classical records and books. And uh, we had also more, a few distant relatives in the uh, Baltic area, uh, which is now where the tourists are, beautiful area by the beaches. And there was one auntie, they had a special regulation if you had some sort of illness uh, or um, if you were handicapped, um, you could um, legally come into Western Germany as um, even before senior citizen age. Normally, the workers couldn't couldn't come over, but uh, in in a few instances they could. So this one auntie would come over and she would tell me how it is over there, uh, how her sons were doing in the East German army. Uh, one guy was um, working for their uh, merchant shipping line, and he later disappeared. We never saw him again. Never seen at all he actually just disappeared probably fled to Cuba somewhere and um yes yeah, so i think in the beginning in the 40s and 50s there were still a lot of family ties people even working on the side on the other side until 1959 60 like working east berlin uh commuting to work from west berlin this was still possible and um some of my teachers had only fled east germany in the in the early 60s, just before, you know, the war was erected uh, via uh, Friedrichshafen um, tram station in East Berlin, which was a perfect place to change from from east to west, uh, short notice, just change tracks and you're in West Germany. So um, later on, as you said, um, more restrictions were imposed, um, severe um, indoctrination, and also I think most people just try to live their little lives, um, adopt and, you know, adapt to the system. Say if you were, you were constantly watched over there at school. If you were caught, caught watching West German television, then you were put under pressure. Your parents were being questioned. If you were um, making too many uh, negative remarks, you were not able to study uh, certain subjects. Uh, if you were a part of a Christian church, you couldn't do this and that and so on. And we all know this. So I think eventually, after about 20, 30 years, um, we definitely had two different systems going and what they call peaceful cooperation mm -hmm. uh, and uh, coexistence, rather. Co peaceful coexistence, the technical term, and yes, North and South Korea, basically. So, so you're going to, uh, I hope at some point in this process, you'll talk about your graduation ceremony uh, flying the you're getting your wings uh, in the US flying the F-104 and the guests that you invited to that. But as but, so I won't spoil that. I'll let you tell that story. <laughs> but um, I, I'm curious to know then, how how did it feel as a young man who was about to join, actually, and, and again, I said you were unique. The other reason, one of the other reasons you're unique to this channel is because you were a sailor before you were a flyer. Um, and, and presumably you'll talk about that too. But but how did it feel as a young man about to join a military that was sort of NATO aligned? Um, were there, you know, did you get a sense that you, as a, as a West German, even though you weren't involved in the war, 
um, that there was any um, sort of condescension or or sort of mistrust or looking down at you because you were German from any of the other NATO countries. Um, and, and did the was there a weight of war on your shoulders as a young man? Did you feel like you had to distance yourself from that? Was it something you could be open about? Um, so it sounds like you were fairly comfortable inviting some interesting, the, this interesting guest to your graduation ceremony. But I, I was just curious about, you know, was, was the shadow of the war still there? Yes and no. I mean, I was a Navy guy's son. My father was in the, a naval um, lieutenant in France. He was on a minesweeper that they had captured from France. So he was there um, untouched. He came back unhurt. And he was actually quite um, positive about his time in the in the, in the the uh, Kriegsmarine. So uh, I didn't hear much negative from his side. I did hear some from other people, of course, who lost relatives. I, I lost an uncle um, in, in the army over there. But uh, generally, I think once we, we had joined NATO, um, I didn't personally sense any hostility or any, you know, unfriendliness towards me as a German. Um, I was, as a 14-year-old, I was once in France on exchange with some other family over there, even though they were not really NATO, um, no no special problems. Uh, once I joined the Navy, I, I immediately took up courses with the Royal Navy, and um, everything was in a great partnership. And uh, I can only say we were treated like comrades and, and it's been like this ever since. So I think uh, once we joined the treaty, uh, that was it. You know, Germany paid a heavy price. The country was divided. It, it was um, highly demolished and um, um, everybody started from scratch. And I think that was the main point. You know, they had to uh, had to learn the lesson. And um, we had pretty good instruction at school, so we knew what was going on, who was the bad guys and the good guys. And, uh, you know, and we were thinking, of course, NATO was a good system. We were tr we trusted in it, and we also trusted in our new allies. And um, I I sometimes come back to the subject because my, my first naval air squadron was um, getting Royal Air Force, uh, sorry, Royal Navy uh, Seahawks. And they came from RAF Lossiemouth with incidentally bombed the turpets. So, so only a years before. So this is within a time span of maybe 10, 20 years. That's nothing, you know, looking back. Yeah. So, but I think, you know, times change and uh, this is it. That's life, you know, carry on and get with it, you know. And I noticed, so one thing I haven't said, um, but the reason I know this story about your graduation ceremony is because you've written a fantastic book about your time in the F-104, and we'll, I'll put a link into the description. Um, Thank you. Uh, is it called Mark II? Yes, it I, is. I get, yeah. I get, I use Kindle, and uh, Kindle never shows you the front cover or any of the, the contents. It just takes you straight to the first page. So so it's called Mark II, and I haven't finished it yet, but I'm really enjoying it. It's a, it's a great read so far. So, um, so. Just a, a final question then about sort of the East West German thing before maybe we understand how it is you ended up flying F 104s. Uh, I suppose it's natural then if you've got a country that is suddenly divided physically, uh, mm -hmm. that you, ha you have relations all over the country and that you might have East German relations and it being a West German. But did that sort of thing impact security clearances or your eligibility to join um, the military then? I mean, if you've got an, an auntie in East Germany who you're in frequent contact with, uh, does that arouse suspicion? Is that investigated or is that seen as a n non issue? 
No, it is. It was an issue, and actually, she was just distant enough so I, I could join. My dad and I had to fill out a lot of papers. Like, incidentally, the same guys, uh, the same thing happened to the East German guys. Uh, if they had relatives on the west side, they would have to claim. But now, with this uh, relationship with our real, quite you know, second cousins, whatever, this was not an issue. It would have been a problem if. Like my brother would have been serving in their East German Air Force or something like that. But uh, no, once you claimed it, once you once you honestly said, you know, this is this, and uh, they probably did some background check and uh, ran some background checks on us anyway. So yes, but it did. Uh, it was actually definitely question uh, what was going on in the background of your family. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so tell us, Rolf. You became a sailor first. Um, obviously, this isn't this is an aviation podcast, uh, but but tell us briefly then how it is you ended up being on board ships. Well, I I I initially wanted to become a school teacher because my best subjects were music, France, French, and English. I said okay, uh, but there was a compulsory military service at the time, and I didn't want to be drafted. I didn't want to be an army grunt or you know digging holes and doing stuff like that. So I said, okay, my dad was in the Navy, so let's try to get into the Navy. And uh, they had a, a funny program, four years sign up as a junior officer program with a sail training ship, Goy Fock, and, and then finally posted on, in, in my case, a frigate, which is a pretty modern type. And uh, I signed up for that. It was a four-year training program, officer's candidate training, uh, some weapons training, some specialized training, you know, limited skills obviously for four years and then i was supposed to uh, get out and go go to university but uh, in the meantime uh, i fell in love with a girl and um, i my heart was broken and some guys picked me up to uh, to go parachute jumping in, in the netherlands you know to cheer me up so this was how i got in touch with uh, aviation and i thought hey this guy in the cessna is much cooler than the guys on my ship <laughs> So I ended up uh, signing up for the German Navy Starfighter pilot program. <laughs> so very ambitious, of very courageous. I never thought I was going to make it, but somehow, you know, they invited me to the psychological test. And uh, in the beginning, I was only uh, interested in flying uh, submarine patrol aircraft, the Brigade Atlantic. You know, these twin-engine. Uh, long-range surveillance aircraft that were flying over the Baltic. I thought, that's cool, you know, go to Lufthansa Flying School, learn the trade, and then maybe eventually join the airline. Uh, but then while I was still on my ship, some um, some Starfighter pilot came on the bridge and said, oh, you must be crazy. Don't drive, you know, slow, slow planes. Go for the fast jets. It's more fun. Go to the States, you know, rattlesnakes and guns and everything. So I believed him. I was only 21. I believed him. I, I changed my mind. I, I changed the papers and I now applied for uh, fast jet training. And that's how I ended up in the Starfighter. Had you, as a boy, had any thoughts about flying? I mean, was, I was your first appreciation of that really when you were in that assessment, Cessna about to jump out of it? Exactly. Yeah, that was it. Never had any, never built any model planes, had no idea about the planes, never even touched a plane uh, before I was in the, basically when I started a uh, screening program with the military. So, so one thing I was curious about, and, and uh, perhaps 
it's premature to talk about it now, but we'll sort of drive in determination. There's there's a point in your book where you talk about being on the gunnery range at Luke um, in the F-104 and guys getting bad scores and throwing the towel in and, and going and flying heavies instead. But, you know, did did the... Did that sort of very nascent appreciation then, that very young uh, appreciation for flying or new appreciation for flying, do you think that was in any way um, influential in then your persistence and your determination to make it through the course, the F-104 course? Um, I, I think about people who have dreamed of this their whole lives, you know, since they were four, they, all they wanted to do is be a fighter pilot. And then thinking whether or not that that can help carry them through difficult moments in the training pipeline because we all know that that those are those happen to everybody regardless of how good they are how talented they are did did your did the fact that this was a nascent enthusiasm do you think that affected your your training or the way you approached it yes probably because i was really ambitious and um once i was accepted to the program i knew i had to work extra hard because i had no flying background and uh, you know i was i was determined to do my very best and um, the moment I started flying, I thought, I felt it was the right thing for me. I felt at home with the plane. I felt comfortable with the instructors, you know, even though I made my mistakes and they gave me back rates every once in a while, but they were fair. And it was a very nice, um, up to today, I think aviation is a great environment where everybody gets a good chance and it's really fair. And um, so if you work hard and if you're lucky, of course, you need a good, you know, every everybody needs a good day for a for a check ride and uh, be in good shape. But generally speaking, you know, if if you work hard enough, you have a fair chance. So I thought, go for it and uh, do my very best, and that's why how I treated it. Yeah. So so tell us about going to the states then. So you you did your training at Luke Air Force Base, which was in Arizona. Um, what was the preparation that you did up to that point? Had you done any academics in Germany before you got to the US? Uh, yeah, actually, we did one year of screening at Fürstenfeldbruck Air Base, which was a, a Nazi air base and then an American air base. It's uh, just outside Munich. It's still there. This is where the um, Luftwaffe Officer School is located right now. And uh, the airbase, the flying part is closed. But we went there in 1976, flew a few hours, 25 hours on a, on a light uh, uh, piston uh, trainer with re retractable gear, which is the uh, Piaggio P149, Italian uh, produced under license in Germany. So we did a bit of flying there just to, to show that we can follow procedures and do some aerobatics, limited aerobatics not gaining a real pilot's license at the time. Then we did academics with um, aerospace physiology, some English, um, pressure chamber, and uh, some other stuff that you need in the, you know, in the, uh, before even starting the formal um, jet training. And then um, after a while, we were sent to Texas with, with the undergraduate pilot training, which is still going pretty much the same way at that time in uh, northern Texas, uh, Wichita Falls, which is about an hour and a half from uh, from Dallas. And then on the Red River near the Oklahoma border, this was a real big, big base with 18,000 people on it. And we were just a tiny part of uh, flying uh, enterprise with uh, a German squadron flying T-37s, twin jets, little side-by-side -side jets. 
and then uh, T-38 uh, supersonic trainers. So we spent the first 13 months without interruption in the States, which was the first time in the United States for me at all. And, and then after a short vacation, we were, once we passed that undergraduate pilot training, got our wings, uh, went on to Arizona to um, Luke Air Force Base, which was home of the uh, Starfighter, at the time, the German Starfighter training. Rob, what did you make of your first flight in that Piaggio then? Did you enjoy it? Do you remember yeah, it? I remember it vividly. It was a very old um, lieutenant, uh, flight lieutenant, um, one of these specialist officers that were sergeants before. And he was a real nice guy, just, I think, about to retire. And uh, he just took me around the field and we did a few turns and pitch up and whatever, you know, just whatever you do to impress a young student. And he was smiling at me and saying, Hey, we even get paid for this, you know, look how much fun I'm having. And this has really impressed me uh, all my life. So it was great fun. And it, it stayed that way. <laughs> yeah. Did, did, did you, you, when you did your aerobatics, how did you take to that? Did you get any air sickness, any, yeah, we did the first real aerobatics in the jet. Um, now, the Piaggio is only capable of limited aerobatics, like Chandel's Lazy 8 and stuff. But I once had a, an experience in the Cessna T-37 over in the States when I really uh, put my barf back in the navigation car, uh, com <laughs> component after spin exercises. You know, we spun and spun and... It was a hot day, you know, no uh, pressure, a pressurized cabin. And my cap my my pilot, Captain Heath, said, okay, don't worry about it. You know, we'll get it finished. And we actually finished the lessons, did a few landings, and then kept gone home. It was the only time. Did, did you get did you get S? Did you get the sense of or the feeling of air sickness any time after that? I mean, did that that experience cure? any air sickness you might feel again, or did you feel nauseous at points again, flying any other time? Actually, fortunately, I never had air sickness since. I think it, partly because you're on, on the controls and you know exactly what's what's going on, right? I mean, if you're a passenger and somebody's jerking the plane around, you never know. But if you have that stick in the hand and you're about to shoot a loop or whatever, Immelman split S, it doesn't matter. Or if you're in a gun attack, or being attacked by someone else, yes, you do violent maneuvers, but you still do it yourself, and you know what's going on. You know you have that instant stick um, relationship, and and the sensory uh, feeling that what's going on is is the reaction of what you are doing. And I think that's why you never get airsick once you're in control. Mm -hmm. so I you think. Said that yeah, I, I, I suppose it's it's about sort of your brain knowing or expecting, as you said, what what's going to happen, isn't it? I suppose if you, much, you're yeah. putting the control inputs in place, then right. If you're in control of yeah, that's it. I think there's probably a psychological element to it. I mean, I I occasionally get to jump in the back of various airplanes, and and I think if I if I spend time thinking about whether or not I'm going to be feel sick i probably will end up feeling sick but if i'm focused <laughs> if i'm focused on doing something else and i'm distracted yeah. from that then then i don't end up getting air sickness so i get it yeah of course um Rob, tell me about the the pace of 
of learning and change and development through that first 13 months. And so you started off by flying in Germany, this um, sort of limited aerobatic airplane that flies very slowly. You then go to the T-37, which has, I think, the highest G onset rate of any aircraft in the US Air Force inventory, but it's not that fast. And then you go to the T-38, which is fast, supersonic. Um, for, for you as a student, people talk a lot about the, in the training pipeline drinking from the fire hose and just you know every day is a challenge to keep up and you learn something one day and the next day you're expected to learn something new uh, did you feel that were you able to go through the training pipeline up until the f-104 fairly easily did you struggle what was the experience like i thought i was a pretty average student i i had to work hard um i I realized there were phases that, you know, came easy, like aerobatics and and others that, you know, the beginning of formation flying was probably more of a challenge. And uh, so step by step, we were taking from one week to the next, every, every time new subject, uh, as you said, you know, what was good on Monday was probably not good enough on Tuesday. So... Um, it was a very, very tight program, and I've seen people leave the course within three days and sent home to Germany. I mean, we were all screened. We were all trained in uh, propeller aircraft, and we were highly motivated, but still half of us had to leave. And uh, so I was, of course, I kept a diary. Uh, every day I was writing down, okay, this was not so good, and hey, I, I had to do this right again. It was kind of... A few instances when one one time due to a miscalculated a final approach speed, I was um, you know I had to do the whole ride again. And of course, if you do that twice, you're halfway back in Germany. Mm. So um, they didn't fool around. You know they were fair, but you know there were strict rules, and you couldn't do more than two unsatisfactories in a week or so. And so I don't exactly remember how it was, but yes, constant progress. And on computer sheets, uh, every day, your performance was being assessed. So, and that was fed into uh, one of these early 70s computers, you know, had to fill the entire um, A4 page with little tick marks in, in pencil, and then feed it into the machine and came out with a big, big chunk of computer sheets with your performance on it. So... Uh, even then, it was, I, felt, I felt heavily under control and pressure. Hmm. But every Friday, you know, we were kind of, we were going to the bar, you know, hanging loose and meeting some girls, you know, relaxing and not thinking about it. So we had a fresh start on Monday. Our squadron commanders were, were good to us. You know, they were understanding that we were, you know, fighting heavily to, to stay in the program. So uh, it was give and take, I would say. What was the split between um, German or was it Luftwaffe or Kriegsmarine uh, instructor pilots uh, and, and American uh, instructor pilots? What was the balance the ratios? We had, um, well, the majority obviously was um, German Air Force because they had more pilots in general. And our Navy only had two wings, two jet wings uh, total, four squadrons. That's nothing, you know, compared to other countries. So, and they were very close together. So we had um, a bunch of Navy pilots. I was maybe one of, was our one of two pilots in the entire class. And, um, 
yeah, I think in my class there were only two Navy guys, the rest was Air Force, but it didn't really matter because, you know, we were all the same age, the same, same program. And the instructors, they came from the United States Air Force, not from their Navy, but the Air Force from all different planes, from tankers, uh, fighters, uh, training planes. And of course, we had our German staff pilots. You know, we had a German lieutenant colonel and a few uh, admin pilots and uh, regular instructor pilots from the, from Germany. And among them were, I think it was one or two Navy guys. One was a... Um, sort of a, well, he was sort of a um, supervisor for the Navy guys that did the program. So he was also reporting to the Admiral saying, you know, this guy's doing okay. Uh, we should watch this guy, you know, he's not doing so well. And uh, so the Navy, our Navy, our little Navy was separately monitoring our performance within the course. Did you, did you notice a difference in instructional technique or uh, any cultural differences in the way that the American and the German instructors operated with you, either in the cockpit or, or out of the cockpit? Not very much, I must say. Um, the, um, the Germans that were there were absolutely Americanized. They were living an American lifestyle. Three, four years in the sunshine, you know, big camper vans, big houses. Their wives, their wives loved it. The kids went to kindergarten. So some actually later settled in the United States. So this lifestyle, um, you know, was available to all of them, um, students and instructor pilots. But yes, uh, of course, the um, personal background of an American Air Force officer was definitely different from from any of, of our German pilots. and. I would also say the culture, the um, yes, the working, the working culture, and some etiquette is different uh, within both air forces. You know, say they have the United States is a very strict uh, hierarchy where you never fulfill the next job in the same squadron. Like if you if you upgrade to deputy or squadron commander, you have to leave. You know, you have to go somewhere else. And it's all, uh, it's fair, but it's also very strict and tough. Whereas in Germany, everybody knows everybody. And also it's uh, this little Air Force, um, comparatively small size, and even the Navy, everybody was, you know, on first name basis. So that was different. You, 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 you mentioned sort of the, 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 you know, living the American lifestyle. Um, yeah. And in your book, you do talk a lot about nurses. <laughs> <laughs> Can't help uh, it. And the yeah. occasional female air traffic tra- controller. But was that diff- was that a lot different from West German? I mean, would a, would a 21-year-old, 22-year-old West German guy, were they that different to, let's say, a similar age sort of American? Well, to us, it was all like a big toy store and a big Disneyland when we came over, the sun was shining, you know, everything was different, you know, everything was Texas sized, very big, you know, big cars, everything, good fun. Yeah, we were we were just young kids, you know, all fascinated. And I think that that really contributed to the fact that we had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And I think, sure, um, same age guy in Germany would have similar fun. But if you get the chance to to spend one or two years under such uh, circumstances in such a great environment, you know, great housing, um, 
great pay. Uh, we were treated like kings in Texas. They were showing us everything in their state. You know, they were treating us to cattle branding sessions and, you know, and steak, steak grill, whatever. Take us to the lakes, go sailing. I mean, this was uh, couldn't be any better. And uh, so we came back full of impressions. And I think it was the best that could happen to us at that age. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the the F-104G then. So this is the the Starfighter for uh, West Germany. Uh, How is that different from other Starfighters? Okay, well, it all began with the uh, 1954's F-104A, which was designed to be a high-altitude interceptor, which is a totally different rule. First flight, February 1954. And this is obviously a competitor with the MiG-21. Uh, so Germany was in the dilemma of having to choose the successor of the F-84 um, Thunderstreak, uh, which they had at the time. So which was kind of an iron, slow speed, you know, plane, you know, very forgiving. And uh, they only had a few options. They had the Mirage and, uh, and the Grumman Tiger. So under political pressure, of course, uh, having to decide within a pretty short time what aircraft to se- select for the two ser- two um, services, the Navy and, the, and the, uh, the German Air Force. So they tested it, you know, World War II pilots, Kopinski, and so they went, uh, went ahead and tested the plane and said, yes, um, Starfighter is, is very good. However, you know, turning capabilities and Let's think of all the weapons that we need to to add. So it's not ready yet. So they had a lot of um, structural structural uh, changes to be made. And <coughs> excuse me. In in the end, um, evolved a totally new plane, higher weight, uh, different structure, different radar, different ejection seat, uh, a lot more weight. So. Um, to be able to carry all these conventional weapons that we already had. So we are talking about, you know, high drag, low drag bombs, uh, unguided and guided rockets, and eventually um, the um, Cormoran uh, missile. So yes, the F-104G was uh, purpose built for the European theater. And it was like 140,000 people working on the program. It was the first big industrial program before airbus and tornado actually so this really um brought back together a lot of um allied and um pre-war german industry uh plants it was very fascinating actually what was going on there messerschmitt all of the whole nine yards everybody was there were you were you looking at the F-104 then? So as you went through the training pipeline, did you know this history about it? Did you know anything about the G model? Uh, were you sort of just heads down getting on with what you had to do that day? Or, or were you looking ahead at what you were going to fly and, and aware of it? Well, it, when you enter a training program, like a conversion to any plane, um, military or civil, you just take it as it is. I knew the background. Yes, I heard the... Uh, all the rumors about Widowmakers, uh, which was um, an issue 10 years before I joined. Uh, so in, in the 60s, uh, when 
those problems had been solved in 1966. And uh, so I came in 1978 uh, onto the Starfighter and at that time was a perfectly normal fast jet. So we were looking at it as like a, a plane that we had to master within a couple of months. And we were starting day one with a walk around and ended up with a graduation party. And uh, we never thought really about the uh, the past with the heavy accident rate and, and all the previous problems that had been there because obviously afterwards when I when I flew operational staff at us, even then they had a few more modifications um, done which were very safety related and uh, some good good things for us but yeah can, can we explore that a little before we talk about then the you know your your procession through the f-104 conversion course um you, you mentioned the, the widow maker the reputation from times previous um what how would you how would you describe what had happened to to get the airplane that reputation and, and that particular name well today it's pretty much obvious um the germans introduced the starfighter uh in a very very short time in a limited time and neither the bases nor the pilots nor the mechanics were actually ready so um the bases the planes were standing out in the cold and rain there were no protective shelters then um there was um still a different maintenance system with squadron maintenance now we had a centralized system which is uh, was introduced in the early 60s uh we had um uh, a poor system management, um, poor parts management. Um, they were dealing with everyday errors. You know, today it was a navigation problem. Next day is a, it's an engine problem, and they were trying to cope with this. The pilots came from subsonic, forgiving, low-speed planes, and they were not aware that the uh, aerodynamic uh, capabilities were totally different. In the Starfighter, you know, take anything from speed to angle of attack and sink rate, especially a very, very bad killer. And uh, so I would say material management, organizational errors, also technical problems. The the early nozzle, the the um, afterburner nozzle uh, tended to um, swing open on takeoff, killing a few people. Then the uh, first ejection seat was firing downwards, not upwards. Imagine, you know, a low-level flight. Um, the successor, the C2, Lockheed C2 ejection seat, would fire upside uh, the correct way ups, uh, up. But um, uh, there were a couple of instances of the seat hitting the pilot after ejection, killing him. Uh, the, so the proper seat-man separation never really took place. Then um, various problems. Um, the engine was always good. I mean, the J79 from the beginning was a very reliable engine, but the um, accessories like the auto pitch control system, uh, as I said, the, um, the big issue was definitely the, uh, the nozzle. Uh, and... I would say this pretty much wraps it up. So mechanical problems, training problems, organizational errors. And it all accumulated in in the mid-60s to a point where almost every day a star would fall out of the sky. Hmm. 
and uh, Steinhoff, you know, the, the guy's badly, badly bruised general from World War II. He said in, in the end of 1966, this is it, you know, we must stop flying uh, for a limited period of time, put all planes on the ground and evaluate the situation. And he came up with the proper procedures. And ever since, everything was good. So that nozzle swinging open then, presumably that means a, a loss of thrust. So if the nozzle yes. swings over, the pressure inside the chamber is, is, le- is lowered. And, exactly. Um, and and so you, you, I think you reference. So you've referenced the auto pitch control, um, and maybe you'll just explain to us in a minute what those things are, and perhaps have a, a deeper discussion around sync rates and 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 those sorts of things. But you talked about there being a T handle in the cockpit that you could pull to lock the um, exhaust petals, the the nozzle. Is that yeah. was that for that particular problem? So if it started right. to swing open, you could pull that and lock it. Yes, it is. Um, actually, it was a, an emergency T-handle on the left-hand side, not far from, you know, from the windscreen. And um, you had to do real uh, quick reaction uh, pulling off this T-handle in order to close the nozzle to a mechanical 50% or whatever uh, area. So to give it that uh, that thrust that you'd actually jump over the fence and and head for clear skies because if you didn't react in time if you were confused or looking what was going on it was too late and we have lost guys due to that and um, another issue the auto pitch control uh, that is a, a system which is um, working with the AOA probe with the angle of attack probe on the outside of the plane that every plane has um, if you exceed a certain angle of attack then first a shaker uh, will shake the, the control stick and then finally a kicker would come in and physically push the stick forward to reduce the angle of attack. And now if this happens at low level, it could happen that it kicks you into the ground. So there's an auto pitch control cutout switch, <laughs> APC cutout, which uh, may help you in such a situation. You, yeah. you you would have come then from the F, to the F one four from the T thirty eight and the T thirty eight is notorious as well in the pattern, isn't it? For you know if you if you mishandle the aeroplane in the pattern, there's a good chance you're going to put yourself into a situation you can't recover from. Um, so did the T thirty eight act as a good lead in trainer for the F one hundred four? Then I mean, did did the the risks and the um, you know the possibility of things going wrong? dramatically increase when you went to the T-38 and then the F-104, say, compared to the T-37? Well, I think the uh, the T-37 was just to learn the trade, and the T-38 was a very good uh, lead-in fighter because of the high wing load and the flight co- the in- unstable flight characteristics to, to begin with, you know, learning to fly formation, you know, be smooth on the controls, be careful in the pattern because of the high wing load, and uh, comparatively high speeds, whereas the Starfighter uh, from the very beginning felt a lot more stable. Um, it was, um, it felt a bit heavier uh, to fly. So um, even though it had great roll rates, it didn't have you know the lightness on the stick when you turn. But I think yes, it was an excellent plane for training for the Starfighter, and uh, it felt right, you know. The first two takeoffs after the T-37, um, you know, were not alarming. You know, you know what was going on. 
a bit more speed, a bit more thrust, but then, yeah, I thought it was good. Uh, okay, so so when you get to the the F one hundred four, you get to Luke. So you go from Shepard to to Luke. Um, what do you uh, what what are the emotional responses you have when you're looking at the F one hundred four on the ground for the first time and thinking about the fact you're going to go and fly that, and at some point you'll be solo in it? Yes, well, the first day was uh, a show by uh, an older major, Mike Vivian, who showed us around like a precious object, and he was looking at it like a marvel, you know, and we said, you know, we're going to fly this beast. And it, it, it was there standing shiny in the desert sun, basically. So it was very impressive for us. And uh, of course, with the sleek wings and no external stores, uh, highly polished, you know, nicely polished uh, metal, no paint on it just US Air Force and some numbers and so on. It was a beautiful sight. Actually, I was very, very fascinated. Were you intimidated by it? Maybe, yeah. Kind of, yeah. It was a single-seat fighter. Uh, never flown a single-seater before. Only two-seaters or four-seaters and uh, said, okay, wow, this is some, something, you know. But it was the whole point of being there. You know, we were, we were supposed to fly the F-104, some of us actually got different different planes. So we, the ones that were selected for the F-104 had remained or had gone to um, to Luke Air Force Base. Others went to George Air Force Base, to Shaw Air Force Base, or back to Germany for uh, G-91 subsonic planes. And so we were the lucky ones that ended up with a Starfighter. Was there, a, was there therefore a, a pecking order in terms of bragging rights and kudos? Were, was there, was it just luck that you ended up, because you were going to go and fly in a, a Marine Flieger, you were the yeah. German Navy squad, was it sort of luck that you ended up at the top of the pile, so to speak? Or um, was that because you were a better applicant, a better candidate for it? Well, they they had the um, a point system where, you know, like a, the top um, percent of the class got the F-104 um, or could decide, you know, some Air Force had the the options of going uh, F-4 uh, or other planes. But, you know, the ones who had wanted to fly the F-104 in the first place, yes, they had to be good and uh, they had to end up in the first, whatever, 25% of the class. Uh, me as a Navy guy, I had to meet the same requirements, but then, had I failed the program, there wouldn't have been a, a suitable plane for me because that was the only jet we had. So uh, yes, I was uh, once I was uh, I passed the program, um, I was automatically um, into in the class. So that was good for me. Did you get winged at the end of T38s then? Or had you had you actually formally received your wings by this time? Yeah, we had um, some German wings after six months in the T-37 and some basic flight pay. And then the United States uh, gave us their metal wings, um, standard pilot wings. Um, they have standard command and senior and command pilot. Um, we got those right after the T-38, so which is about 13 months after we started the program in the United States. So we Did came you... back. Yes. Sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. So we, when we, when we left for Arizona, we already proud two wings on our jackets. You know, the German and the United States Air Force one. So, so uh, the question I was going to ask was, 
whether or not you felt like a fighter pilot. I, I, th- there are, you know, those who talk about being fighter pilots as being a, a state of mind and, and, and a set of characteristics and behaviors and mentalities rather than just, you know, you can be somebody who flies fighters or you could be a fighter pilot. Were you beginning to become a fighter pilot? Did you feel like a fighter pilot at that point? Slowly, yes. We were apprentice fighter pilots. And, uh, you know, we from every day we were learning some new trade. But we didn't actually fire any weapons until we ended up in Luke. So we had been uh, flying unarmed uh, T-38s and T-37s up to then, doing some formation exercise, doing some basic fighter maneuvering, yes, but because there was nothing close to what we had later in the, in the firing range. And so it was only um, at Luke Air Force Base when I slowly began to understand I was going to be a fighter pilot, you know. So firing uh, firing a weapon is different from flying training planes. And that's how I felt, you know. It, it did something to me. I thought, okay, this is it, you know, this is, it's not a toy store anymore. We actually go into the gunnery range, you know, and that's where we went. Can you describe the F-104G then as a weapon system? Um, you talked about it having a, d- a different radar from the early um, F-104A. What radar did you have? How capable was it? What could you do with it? Uh, how um, how capable was the aeroplane as a weapon system? Well, first off, I think the tornado, I'm sorry, the Starfighter was a very stable weapons platform due to its high wing load. So it was actually once it was in the air and uh, beyond 300, 300 knots, you were looking at a very, very stable platform, not shaking around, no vibrations, no oscillations. But um, from looking at the radar, yes, uh, we did use it for ground mapping. It was called the NASA radar, um, which was a a model developed in the 50s. And uh, for that time, a very advanced ground mapping slash air-to-air radar, which had an air-to-air mode for gunnery and missile attacks. So where you had a range circle and and on this, you know, depicted on this uh, combining glass, uh, the forerunner of the head-up display. And uh, it it was a pretty good tool, I would say. Um, You had to take various things into account, you know, wind correction, um, the computing side. It was not a wind computing side for for, uh, attacks, so you had to always uh, do your own math and figure out where the wind was coming from, how much, you know, had to aim into the wind. And this took a lot of practice, but... Uh, we did uh, radar runs over the desert of Arizona, where we actually did our own map predictions, shedding with uh, with pencil and paper, uh, trying to figure out what this hill uh, in the desert would uh, would end up showing and on the radar scope. And and this is how you actually learn the trade. So it was a monochrome radar um, with you know state of the art round little display. And uh, we got introduction to air-to-air radar um, in various modes. So this is pretty much what everybody had at the time. There was nobody better equipped than us, uh, neither on the eastern side, neither in the western inventory. So I think that was pretty much it. So, so you were on par from from a radar point of view then with the the F four, um, the the radar. 
uh, APQ120 is the designation it ended up being. I can't remember what it was originally for the F4. But w- would you say then that your uh, ability in the air-to-air arena was therefore uh, had parity with the F4 in, in that respect? Well, I I wouldn't be able to tell uh, because I never flew the F4. I spoke to the guys and, of course, they were two-man con- con- cockpit one focusing on on this and the other guy focusing on that. This was already an advantage, so to speak. But our primary role was uh, fighter bomber. So uh, we were mostly dealing with ground mapping. And we were not actually watching the skies for some guys intruding, you know, and then uh, trying to lock onto him with a radar. This was a secondary role. And this is something that we all did for practice and for training. But... I would say 80% of our job later on was done low level flying over the ski over the sea looking for um possible hostile um surface and aircraft so okay. this was what we were equipped for in the in the first place I think we'll we'll get into that in a minute then so uh, um, when we talk about you going back to Germany and and of course there's the the thing that all, people always talk about having gone and trained in Arizona is getting back to the uh, weather of yes. Western Europe. Um, so you'll, you'll talk about that, I'm sure. But what about the um, the strike training missions that you were flying then and the thing we talked about earlier around some guys getting bad scores and throwing in the towel? Did Was that a surprise that people just said, well, it's not for me? Uh, could you see that building up and building up and, and people becoming less and less comfortable with the flying and their achievements in in the in the training pipeline? Or or did people literally seem okay and then the next day they, they would say I'm done? Yes, this also happened, but I would say generally most of us um did fairly well in the weapons training. Um, you know, you start off with typically with low level low level work at hundred feet bombing level bombs, then doing some angular work, you know, 10 degrees, 20 degrees, do some strafing and so on and so on. So this takes a lot of practice. Everybody knows, and you need a lot of runs. Uh, We had at least, I think it was 24 missions in our program, just air to ground gunnery and bombing. So any fighter pilot will know that it takes a certain time to get used to it. I mean, to have actually find this perfect spot in, in space and time, where you can release that weapon without having G's on the aircraft, without aiming to the wrong direction, and so on and so on. Having the plane on speed, even though it may look right, it could be totally wrong because you have G's on the plane or you're not considering the wind. But yeah, some by, some people were, were probably <clears throat> not designed to be, uh, you know, uh, a fighter pilot, because of that, because they had problems um, physically handling the plane on a on a firing range, it means uh, within the given time frame, with our short time frame and the tight program that we had, actually mastering this pattern work with four aircraft in the pattern, chasing around, not trying to lose each other, rolling in the correct bank and the correct dive angle. And then in the at the end of the day, if you still haven't got it, the next day and the day after, uh, you, people may say, you know, it's not your cup of tea. Go back to transport planes. And <clears throat> if you had a chance, you were allowed to actually cross transfer to maybe a, a, a transport. But this was not the rule. 
most people was put back to the uh, uh, to weapon system operator seat, so rear seat. Oh, did they? Yeah, they were offered. Many of our guys, I had uh, three guys flunking the class. They were all happy backseaters afterwards, doing a fine job. So they went to the Air and uh, nobody complained. Good pay, good fun. Everything was fine, except that they weren't pilots. So, so they have, so they had pilots' wings, um, but they went and became wizards. Um, yeah, in some instances, they were washed out at the point where we already had their wings uh, and some were washed out earlier. So they were, you know, asked, you know, what would you like to do? You know, said, okay, your score so far are not bad. You know, why not train you as a navigator? Mm-hmm. And they ended up with a navigator, but it, it didn't mean much different because the, the long, the longest part of the career was still ahead of them. So they had a bit of, a bit of pilot training, which didn't hurt. And then went all the way t- through their navigator training in Pensacola and George Air Force Base and you name it, you know. It's a good way of staying in the US for another couple of years. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. They loved it. Yeah. At, at this point then, Rolf, when you're flying around the circuit and you're thinking about controlling all these variables in order to get th- this impossible task of getting some rounds on target um, yeah. with just this lead computing optical site, what... what um, were you like as an aviator? Were you able to fly the F one hundred four without really thinking about it, and therefore focus on the task of, you know, shooting something or dropping a bomb on something or a simulated bomb on something, or were you still having to spend quite a lot of time thinking about flying the airplane? Well, quite honestly, some people say it takes a thousand hours to to become part of the airplane. It's just strap it on or strap onto the plane. And forget that it's actually an airplane and just it's a gun, you know, flying gun. Mm. Uh, it took me a long time to actually not forget, but not to think so much about the surroundings, you know, the limits and the uh, aerodynamic limitations that the plane is, which always, always have to be taken into consideration because uh, once you're in an attack, you immediately have problems with G-loads and, uh, I angle of attack uh, limitations and so on. So you can really, except maybe for modern uh, typhoon jets or so, where you actually don't don't have to think about it. But in those days, of course, if you overjeet the plane or if you, you forgot about the fl- speed, that was it. So I think uh, most of us were fully aware, you know, they had to to try and do both, you know, fly the plane and use it as a weapon and focus on both and not forget any switches, not forget any limitations, don't exceed anything, do this, do that. So it's quite challenging. From a, from a systems point of view, was it was it a complicated airplane? Um, I would say there was a fair amount of switches to be done before you could actually do anything, you know, the master arming switches, the camera switches, the pre-bomb selection, the timing selections for the nuclear weapons set, and so on and so on. Uh, but on the other hand, um, those were me- mostly mechanical devices and you had right in front of you, you know, if you push the right buttons and had a, f- a certain sequence going, uh, you were likely to to actually um, release a bomb or firing a, fire a gun. But um, I haven't flown any any fast modern jets, you know, I've been out of the of the armed forces for too long, I wouldn't be able to, tr- to, to tell 
what it is like to be flying an F-16 or a Typhoon jet in comparison, you know, with all the track down, shoot down capability and all the various uh, things you have to um, to consider on the, on the, the you know, the HOTA stick and so on, things we never had. So we thought it was a lot, but maybe from a today's pilot pilot point of view, it was ridiculous. Thanks for tuning in to 10% True. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe, and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks, and take care.